Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Prisoners at an ICE detention facility run by the private GEO group went on hunger strike this week. Here's their statement. Why we strike. We've been kidnapped by ICE and detained in four dorms of the Mesa Verde detention facility in Bakersfield, California. Since the outbreak of COVID-19, we have been sounding the alarm about the dangerous conditions inside this facility. We have written letters, recorded videos, and even gone on hunger strike. Unfortunately, nothing has changed. We are still in danger and still afraid for our lives. We know that we will not be safe until we are freed, but ICE wants to keep us locked up, and GEO Group wants to make money off us. We have no choice but to go on hunger strike once again. We will forego cafeteria meals to protest our continued detention and the horrifying conditions at Mesa Verde, such as a Mesa Verde nurse tested positive for COVID last week. Only a handful of people that she came into contact with on her last day of work have been tested for the virus. COVID is now in every detention center in California and only recently killed our brother, Carlos Mejia. Our jailers come in and out of the facility and move between the dorms every day and most of them still don't wear masks or gloves. People from state prisons where there are confirmed COVID cases continue to be transferred into our dorms without being quarantined or tested for the virus. At a time when we need strong immune systems more than ever, we are served spoiled, non-nutritious food. Our meals mostly consist of beans and fake meat, and we rarely get any fruit. They use the same ingredients over and over until they are rotting and foul-smelling. The portions are tiny and we are constantly hungry. Only some of us are lucky enough to have families who can afford to buy us expensive, and usually unhealthy, snacks from the commissary. Many of our toilets don't work, and some of us are forced to share just two toilets and one urinal with dozens of people. Our bathroom floors are covered in disgusting standing water filled with mosquitoes and crickets. We are forced to live with the constant smell of dead animals. We've voiced these concerns to staff of Geo Group, the for-profit company that ICE pays to run our facility. But they don't care about us. They value their bottom line more than our lives. Every dollar they don't spend on our food, sanitation, and medical care is another dollar in their pockets. We are angry, we are tired, we are scared. We demand our freedom, and in the meantime, we demand the ICE and GEO immediately. One, stop transferring people from criminal custody into ICE detention. Two, serve us fresh, nutritious food, including fruit, real meat, and larger portions. Three, repair our bathrooms and clean and sanitize our dorms regularly. And four, require that all staff wear masks and gloves at all times. We will continue our strike until we are free and until these basic demands are met. It's time that Geo Group and ICE recognize our humanity and stop putting our lives at risk. Please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. You can call in on behalf of a loved one or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765 763-6236. Administrators at Indiana Women's Prison 
have begun locking prisoners in small cells without a sink, toilet, or ventilation. The cells are manually locked, which presents a high risk of death by fire. As one of the prisoners wrote in a petition to address the conditions, quote, after the fuse box sparked over the weekend, I really contemplated, could this building catch on fire? The stuff on the inside absolutely could, and no fire suppressant system is in any housing unit. With only one set of keys and the cells locked, the COs can't even open the doors regularly, having to call relief to open the doors. Will the fuses, now overloaded with a makeshift air conditioning unit from 1985, not working by the way, in the day room catch fire? I have thought how I would free myself in case of a fire, locked in a cell, my options are none." Unquote. Another prisoner wrote, quote, I'm afraid of dying by fire because of the ways the outlets blow in the summer. No one cares here about the heat in the cells nor the fire hazard posed by the cells being locked. Unquote. Describing the overall situation and lack of ventilation, another prisoner said, quote, Yes, we are still locked inside these hot cells, two, three, or four to a cell. Ice is only retrieved one time a day, enough for everyone to have one small cup. No cool air enters the cells at night because no circulation or ventilation systems exist in these cells when the doors are closed. The temperature does not break in the cool of the night. Instead, the brick cells act as insulated hot ovens." Unquote. We'll include a link to the petition on our website. And now, we have an interview sent to us about barriers to higher education in and after incarceration. This interview is between Christina Byers and Anastasia Schmid, both former inmates at the Indiana Women's Prison. Here they are. All right, my name is Christina Byers. I'm your host today. I'm here with Anastasia Schmid. She's a grad student in the Medical Humanities Department at IUPUI, which is short for Indiana University, Purdue University of Indianapolis. I'm so happy to be with her today. Welcome, Anna. Hi. Anna. There's so much I can say about you to introduce you. Not only are you a founding member of the History Project, which has had national exposure, maybe international exposure at this point, all started while you were still incarcerated at the Indiana Women's Prison. You're also a recipient of the 2016 Gloria Ann Zudula Award. That's an award that stems from the American Studies Association for your work in gender and sexuality. You've also received several other awards, and then you're also about ready to publish a book, what next year, I believe it is, is... is... Well, hopefully. Okay. Not next year, 2022, is our hope for projected uh, publication date with the new press. Okay. But you're, you definitely have a contract and you're working on that now. Yes. Yes. Wonderful. Um, so... Basically, you know, we're doing these interviews to talk about barriers that people have experienced um, while pursuing higher education within prison and also um, upon release and, and what those experiences were like for people and how we can uh, work to make things better. So if you don't mind, Anna, if we can just start from the beginning, you had some education prior to going into prison. Did that work to your advantage? Was that a factor at all? In your studies? Yeah, I went to college probably on five different occasions prior to my incarceration. I was an adult by the time I went to prison, so, you know, that's a little different of an experience. I had had a lot of life experience, adult living in the outside world, and a lot of education under my belt before going in. I never did end up obtaining a degree in any one area, though. 
Uh, so when I got inside and I found out that college programming was available, I figured what better way to spend my time than to finally go back and finish a degree in something. Now the irony of that would be out of five different occasions of me going to college, you would have thought I'd have a substantial number of credits that would have transferred in. Uh, however, that ended up not being the case. Of all my collective college experience combined, I believe only about a semester's worth of credits transferred, roughly 15 to 18 credit hours. So, like I said, they did not give me credit for more than about one semester's worth of classes. So, I was essentially beginning my degrees on the inside from ground zero. Wow. And and, and was that because of the degree that you chose to pursue with Ball State? or And also, were you limited on... Uh, your choices for degree options? Uh, yeah. So I, because I went to school so many different times prior, I did a lot of traveling in my life and moved around the country quite a bit before I became incarcerated. So I think part of the reason was that my credits came from so many different schools across the country. So some of it simply was not going to transfer in because they were out-of-state schools. Uh, some of my credits had come from Ivy Tech State College, so they weren't going to transfer in Ivy Tech credits. Uh, you know, so the, I mean, there were various reasons uh, why some of those credits weren't transferring. Uh, the other was, at the time, Ball State in the prison was only offering uh, a general education diploma, just general arts. So, you know, in a way, it's kind of ironic that if you're offering a degree, basically just a gen ed degree, why more of the credits didn't transfer? Because theoretically, that was going to involve kind of a, a foundational across-the-board education. But uh, for whatever reason, if you were a decent student at Ball State and you had a good rapport with your uh, professors and with the administrators, they were pretty open to bringing us the classes that we wanted, what we wanted to see. So within my first year at Ball State, I expressed an interest in wanting to pursue a degree for psychology. And, you know, my professors and the administrators, they were very willing to bring in what was needed to make that happen. I apparently was not the only student to express that interest at the time. So it became beneficial to just offer kind of a plethora of classes in psychology. Um, and so as time went on, that's exactly what I majored in and uh, ended up actually doing a triple minor in psychology uh, through Ball State through the course of my education with them. So it sounds like you had a pretty good experience studying, um, taking courses through Ball State. Yeah, I, I mean, for the most part, I really have uh, no complaints at all whatsoever. Our, our classes were intimate. They were interactive. They were critical in analysis and theory. Uh, you know, I, I cannot complain at all about the actual education I received from Ball State on the inside. Um, you know, the, the teachers were very, very vested in their students and very much willing to work with us, uh, not only collectively but individually. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was a good experience for me. So, would, obviously, you were learning. You were taking the courses just as if you were um, on the outside taking courses. So we know education has, a, has an impact on our, our daily lives. Can you talk about the impact it had on you while you were incarcerated, how that changed, changed your life on the inside? Absolutely. 
Uh, I was in a very precarious state of life prior to incarceration. Uh, I have a very extensive background of trauma in multiple areas. Uh, so coming into prison, I was not in the best shape mentally, physically, really in any capacity at that point in time. But uh, it was a very, very low point in my life prior to, during the process, and then originally coming into prison. So education for me at that point in time really became the catalyst of transformation for my life. How was I going to take these extremely horrific circumstances that had happened and try to funnel that into something worthwhile with purpose uh, that would give me the ability to remain positive and productive but I think first and foremost for me, my education on the inside was really transformative for me. What was I going to do to figure out the issues and the problems that I had within myself in my own life? Uh, how was I going to find the answers and the solutions to that and give some type of livability to my life under the circumstances and um, be okay as a human being and especially being okay in such horrific circumstances. Uh, it gave me drive, purpose, motivation, uh, hope. I mean, I was facing an extremely long sentence and I think it's very easy for any individual when they're facing a lot of time like I was to become very hopeless and to want to just completely give up. Uh, you know, I, I think one of the common fallacies when we talk about reform with prison and we just talk about prison in general, people want to use terms like rehabilitation. They want to talk about all this programming. And the outside world is under this erroneous assumption that that's just a given that you come in and they're automatically educating you and giving you therapy and doing all these wonderful things. And that is not at all the reality. Uh, for those of us who were a part of education, most of us had to fight tooth and nail to get it, even though it was being offered. Uh, it was a long uphill battle to even be able to get admittance into the college and to be able to do that. So, uh, you know, it's a constant struggle in the system itself to be able to attain and become a part of what theoretically is an option for you to do. It may be there, but it doesn't mean it's easy for you to get into. Uh, it also doesn't mean that this is the choice that the majority of people inside are making. There are a substantial number of people that they choose not to. So, um, you know, it's very possible to go into prison for a few years or many, many years or even many decades and not do anything at all the whole time. So, um, you know, it's a choice too. Um, and like I said, a choice that most of the time you have to fight in order to obtain. And that was certainly the case with me. They were not readily offering me this. I was not going to be one of the people that they were pushing to get in originally. So can, can you, you mentioned it was difficult to get in, to get accepted. You had to fight for, um, that opportunity. Uh, can you talk about why you had to fight for that opportunity? Sure. Like I said, uh, unfortunately, I have a background pretty steeped in trauma. Trauma leads to some mental and emotional problems. Uh, I do have chronic PTSD. And so originally going into prison with psychiatric diagnoses, um, we are the most forgotten of the forgotten. 
nobody really wants to take the time to figure out what the problem is or why you have it or if it's an actual problem or if you are capable or able to function in even an everyday capacity, let alone higher intellectual functioning. And I think, you know, one of the biggest barriers I originally faced inside the prison was trying to get people to understand that having some type of a mental illness label does not equate a person being mentally deficient. So there was this false assumption that any and all people inside who had any type of psychiatric diagnoses were also mentally incompetent and mentally deficient and incapable of doing higher levels of learning. Uh, it took several months of me fighting and arguing with counselors, trying to even so much as convince these people that I was in college before I came to prison. I was a straight A student on the street. There was no reason for me not to be able to get in. And I mean, it was very much an uphill battle. I finally had to just appeal to one particular staff member who worked on the psychiatric unit inside the prison who was like, yeah, you know what? I hear you and you're right. And it's wrong that they're trying to lock you out. And she went to bat for me and she got me in. And so, you know, that was kind of the beginning of it. But, you know, going into higher education, especially under those circumstances and with the stigmatizing label, at that point in time then, I'm uh, having to work twice as hard as the average student would. I had to approve myself above and beyond what most of the other incarcerated students were doing. So, you know, I think there's barriers within barriers and there's labels upon labels and there's issues and circumstances and intersections within these dialogues that aren't necessarily getting addressed. And my particular case is one of those things. Thank you for sharing that. I know it's not... Um... For some reason, uh, we've kind of stigmatized uh, what we classify as mental illness even. Um, it kind of has a negative connotation when somebody has something they're dealing with. I appreciate you sharing that. It sounds kind of like you having the opportunity to to further your studies actually kind of saved you and brought you out of that. Like you mentioned, it gave you purpose. So things are going well while you're a Ball State. Your classes are progressing. You're progressing in, as far as your career track, you know, your degree. And then tell me about what happens. Oh, you're three semesters in or four? Uh, no, at this point in time, I had fully completed two semesters. I obtained my associate's degree with Ball State and was certainly going on to uh, complete a bachelor's degree at that point in time. So it would have been halfway through the first semester of my third year with Ball State that all of a sudden we are all told that Ball State has lost the contract to the state and Oakland City University is about to come in and take over. So at the end of that calendar year, Ball State was going to be completely out of the prison. So like I said, I'm in the first semester of my third year at this point in time and you know, like I said at the beginning, I had about a semester's worth of classes that originally transferred in. So for me, I'm three semesters away from being able to graduate with a bachelor's degree. The problem is that Ball State is only going to be in the prison for two, the one I'm currently in and the next consecutive spring semester. After that, they're gone. Any student who was enrolled at the time who had not yet finished degree 
uh, was going to be forced to have to transfer credits to Oakland City. Now, herein lies the problem. At this point in time, my amazing professors and Ball State administrators had just moved mountains to bring me every single class I would have needed to earn a psychology degree. So the bulk of my credits were all psychology and psychology degree related and geared towards that track. If I would have had to transfer over to Oakland City, I was going to lose almost every single credit I had earned. And at that point in time, what was almost two and a half years in with only three semesters left to go. And, so, and why is that? Is that because uh, Oakland City University was not offering a psych degree or anything similar? No, they were offering solely um, different types of business degrees and, you know, management degrees and the kind of things that, you know, quote unquote, they had told people that prisoners are going to need to succeed in the outside world. So, you know, unfortunately, that was not factoring into my life or my plans for my life and was about to be a huge devastation. So at this point in time, I began speaking with the Ball State administrators. What in the world can I do to finish my degree with Ball State that I worked so hard to attain, not lose all those credits, and actually get my degree in psychology that I worked so hard to, to do? Uh, so at this point in time, now I'm looking at there is one final semester left that Ball State will be inside the prison. And I still need 27 credit hours in order to be able to complete that degree with Ball State. So at this point, it seems, I mean, did the dev devastation set in? Did it seem like there's no way? Or did you instantly go into, okay, how are we going to fix this? Well, sure. I mean, I think the initial reaction is, oh, my God, this is... Uh, insurmountable. I mean, how am I ever going to do this? I need 27 hours. There's one semester left. Uh, the grant money that was available in the state of Indiana at the time would not pay for more than 18 hours in a semester. So I need 27. They're only going to pay for 18 in the next semester. If I had to let that remaining 11 credits roll over, I would have been screwed. I'm losing my degree with Ball State. I'm losing all those credits to Oakland. It would have been starting from ground zero. And then at that point in time, I had used up so much of my financial aid, I never would have been able to finish a degree with Oakland City anyway. So again, I go back. I talk to the administrators because at this point in time, there was no way I was going to lose everything I had just worked so hard to attain. I didn't care what it took. I was going to complete that degree at the end of the next semester, graduate with Ball State, and uh, carry on with my life, a, de a degreed person. Which sounds great. Uh, how did that actually work? Tell me about what you had to do to actually uh, realize that dream. Okay, so here would be one time that I can actually say I am an anomaly, and that in this one particular context, I was an exception, and maybe exceptional in this point, that at that point in time, I was indeed a straight-A student with Ball State. Uh, my GPA was impeccable. My rapport with my professors was impeccable. Uh, my ability to work above and beyond was superseding most of my fellow students. And the administrators at Ball State said, Anastasia, if you had been any other person walking in here talking this craziness that you want 27 credit hours in one semester, we would have laughed you right out the door. However, 
given your track record, given your GPA, given your standings with this university, we will allow you to do it if. Now, here we come, here we go again. This big old if is once again one area where if I were not in the position that I was in, this would not have happened for probably 99% of other people. And talking about the position that you were in, like you mentioned, being an anomaly, um, not everyone would have the opportunity you did to to get all of those classes in, get all of those credits, because as you mentioned, there's a gap between what state funds were going to provide for you to finish your degree and that gap between what you needed. And I think you needed 27 credits, the state would pay 18, that leaves nine credits. So that nine credits had to be paid for by someone. Yes, and and who was that someone? Okay. Was that something you were able to earn? Were you able to pay no. for that with, with money you were making within the prison? Absolutely not. Okay. Uh, prison funding, if you are really, really lucky, you're making $20 a month, if you're really lucky. And that $20 a month has to sustain you. You must pay for all of your internal needs with that amount of money. So is that going to pay for nine credit hours at a major university? Absolutely not. I mean, it wouldn't have even touched it. So at the time, I want to say that the tuition was roughly somewhere between three and $500 a credit. I mean, it was up there. I was looking at, I was going to have to come up with a few thousand dollars out of pocket to be able to pay for those additional classes. And uh, who paid for that? Well, certainly not me. Being an incarcerated person, I had zero money. Uh, I was indigent once I was inside prison. I had lost everything through this happening, despite the fact that I was a business owner previously. Uh, incarceration will devastate a person's life in ways far beyond what most people realize. And, you know, so for myself, uh, I had no more money. Um, and certainly I couldn't rely on the wages that the prison was paying. Um, so fortunately, I have a family that is very supportive. And when they listened to the plight that I was in and just how detrimental the loss was going to be if I did not pay for that nine credit hours, uh, my family opted to pay that remaining money for me to complete that tuition. Uh, so that I'd be able to finish those 27 hours in that semester. And what other people may not realize is that college, at least in this state, uh, can earn a person what's known as good time credit, which essentially equates a reduction in a prison sentence. So in this context, the bachelor's degree was worth two years of good time credit. So that would have been me also spending an additional two years in prison by not earning that degree. Wow. It's great. I'm so happy your family was able to step up for you, the women um, that were there with you. Uh, would you say that that was the norm, that many of them would have had that same access to funds? Absolutely not. Uh, I watched and witnessed firsthand the devastation of countless women around me who lost their degrees, who lost their funding. Even for the ones that went on to transfer to Oakland City, so many of them could never finish because the grant money ran out before they were able to earn those degrees. And for some other women, uh, Oakland City would eventually pull out before they finished their degrees. So 
uh, I was one of a handful of women that were lucky enough to be able to complete the degree and finish what I was doing and use the money that was available through the state at the time, uh, plus have that supplemental money provided by outside people. That's great. And, and it's an amazing story that, that you did have that support and that you were able to maximize that while so many people fell to the mercy of the Department of Corrections. This set of interviews conducted on barriers to higher education is made possible by a grant from the Lumina Foundation. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.